Dateline, Rome, Italy, 62 A.D. A cargo ship from Alexandria arrives with a special passenger, a man named Paul, leader of Christianity, prisoner of Rome. Paul was arrested in Jerusalem for insurrection, and he was held in two years for two years in a Roman, Roman stockade at Caesarea. As a citizen of the empire, it was his legal right to appeal. And so he opted to stand trial before Emperor Nero. We have no record of his encounter before the Caesar. But I'm sure that after Paul was done, it was Nero who felt like he was on trial. Count on Paul to present the ruling Roman with a compelling witness of his Lord Jesus. Imagine the showdown in Nero's palace. The apostle to the Gentiles stands before the king of the Gentiles. At Paul's conversion, Jesus had predicted that Paul would bear his name before Gentiles and kings. Now the moment has come. The apostle confronts the prince of the Gentiles with the king of all kings. Secular historians note a marked change in Nero around the time of his meeting with Paul. 62-63 AD. Nero went nuts. The man went insane. It's possible Nero's rejection of the gospel helped to cause his demise. Demon possession probably best explains his behavior. Nero ended up one of the cruelest rulers of all time. He even murdered his own wife and mother. Nero was an egomaniac. He showed off by building stadiums and constructing pagan temples. But Rome was out of room, and Nero needed more space to build. And so on July the 19th, 64 AD, a fire started in the woodsheds near the Circus Maximus. Later, it was reported that Nero's servants were seen running from the woodsheds where the blaze had started. The ensuing fire engulfed the city. It raged for ten days and torched two-thirds of downtown Rome. Everyone suspected Caesar Nero to be the arsonist. He had burned the city to the ground, his own city, just so that he could rebuild it in honor of himself. Nero fiddled while Rome burned. And when the finger started pointing at the Caesar, he needed a scapegoat. So he blamed Rome's incineration on the Christians. Nero launched a massive crusade to persecute the followers of Jesus. He burned believers at the stake to light his wild orgies. Nero clothed Christians in animal skins and threw them to the wild dogs just to watch them get mauled. Christians under Nero were crucified. They were executed by gladiators and they were torn apart by ferocious lions. Nero's persecution of believers was relentless and merciless. And finally, in AD 65, he arrested the two champions of Christianity, Peter and Paul. For Paul, it was his second arrest. That same year, Peter was crucified upside down and a few months later, Paul was beheaded. At the writing of this letter to Timothy, Paul's head is on the chopping block. He is in Rome's maritime prison. 
I've actually been there on several occasions. It's a dungeon, a cold, dark, damp cave. In Paul's day, it was rat-infested and sewer-infected. The prison that held Paul was just off the famous forum. And as he was being held, Paul could hear the mindless chants of pagan worship. He could smell the sacrifices burning to the idols. Paul wasn't far from where the Colosseum would later be constructed. In years to come, the Colosseum would become a graveyard for Christians. The site might have been chosen because it had already become a killing field. Picture Paul now. He's chained to a dungeon wall. He hears the screams of fellow believers being tortured for their faith. He knows at any moment he could be next. Welcome to Rome. And in such dire straits, what is his priority? Paul writes a letter. As he awaits a date with the executioner, he pens his final words to a friend. And that's what we have here, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. Notice, instead of fearing death, Paul is rejoicing over the promise of life which he has in Christ Jesus. Hanging over his head isn't a gloomy cloud, but a glorious sunrise. Jesus has guaranteed him eternal life. He writes to Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Warren Wearsby points out, Paul added mercy to his greetings to pastors. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. For Paul knew that pastors need mercy. And I couldn't agree more. A pastor traffics in things over his head. Who am I to speak about God and for God? Who am I to represent the Almighty? It's a sobering responsibility. James chapter 3 verse 1 warns pastors... Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Pastors need to take heed. But I'm also glad God tempers his judgment with mercy. And so, I hope you be like God and have a little mercy on your pastor. Paul says in verse 3, I thank God. He does what? I thank God. Realize jail for Paul isn't just three square meals a day, cable TV and access to the prison library and weight room. No, he's in a dungeon. The lights are dim. The air is damp and cold. Paul pees and poops in a can. If he eats at all, it's because someone on the outside has shared with him a few scraps. The apostle now is old and he's tired. And he's about to die. Yet notice this. He thanks God. There's no grumbling. No murmuring. No whining. No focusing on himself and his troubles. No concern about his own plight. No worries about his future. He's full of praise and gratitude to God. You remember the pilgrims who got off the Mayflower? Life in the New World was tough. The first year, these people built seven times 
more graves than they built huts. And yet they decided to set aside a day for what? For thanksgiving. Brothers and sisters, it really is all a matter of perspective. Well, Paul says he thanks God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did. Notice Paul is concluding his ministry here with no regrets. His conscience is clear. He has taken no shortcuts. He has served his God with integrity. Paul served God and he prayed for Timothy. As without ceasing, I remember you, he says, in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. See, Timothy is on the outside shedding a tear in prayer for Paul, while Paul is on the inside praying for his friend Timothy. And when he thinks of Timothy, he can't help but to remember his family. Verse 5. For when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Now notice this. Only genuine faith is detected by kids in their parents. You notice that? He says, the genuine faith which is in you and which was in your grandmother and in your mother. You see, kids only pick up on genuine faith. Kids have an innate radar. They have their own baloney meter. You know that. Kids have a baloney meter that, hey, filters out anything that's phony. Parents, your child is impressed by your relationship with God only if it's a genuine faith. Acts chapter 16 verse 1 tells us that Timothy's dead was not a believer. But his mom and his grandma were sincere Christians with a vibrant faith. And these two ladies had a profound impact on Timothy. And this should be a great encouragement to all single moms. And ladies married to unbelievers, single and solo Christian parents can raise kids with prevailing and godly character. I hope all parents realize their top priority should be their child's spiritual formation and development. So what if you teach your kid to read and write, or sharpen their athletic skills, or send them to college, or turn them into good citizens, if they die and go to hell? Christian psychologist James Dobson comments, I urge you as parents of young children to provide for them an unshakable faith in Jesus Christ. This is your most important function as mothers and fathers. How can anything else compare in significance to the goal of keeping the family circle unbroken in the life to come? We need to pass down our faith to our kids. And realize You don't pass along faith like you pass down curly hair or big feet. Faith is not genetics or germs. Breathing on your child won't make them a Christian. Even proximity to other Christians is no assurance they'll become Christians themselves. See, passing down spiritual values is like a quarterback passing to his split end. It's a voluntary act on both ends of the deal. The quarterback has to pick the right timing. He has to throw the ball to the right spot. He has to put the right touch on his pass. A pass completion 
requires timing and targeting and touch. And even a perfect pass has to be squeezed by the receiver and pulled into his chest. Likewise, faith is a personal decision. We use timing and targeting and touch to convey God's truth, but then the kid has to pull it in for himself. Paul continues, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Timid Timothy was how this young man was known by his friends. According to 2 Timothy 4 verse 5, Timothy's gift was evangelism. He had a knack for communicating his faith to unbelievers. But because of his fears and his inhibitions, he had allowed his spiritual gift to lie dormant. We can, that can happen to us too. He needed to blow the dust off of his gift and put it to good use. Have, have you ever got out of the swimming pool on a cold day? Once you dry off and warm up, it's awfully hard to make yourself go back in, isn't it? This may have been Timothy's dilemma. He had gotten out of the struggle for a little while. Perhaps it had started as just a little break from serving God. But now that he had dried off, he was having a very hard time going back into the water. Timothy, Paul says, needs to grit his teeth. He needs to stir up his desire. He needs to dive back into the pool. Perhaps you've taken a break from ministry, from being involved in your church or for the Lord. Now you're having a hard time easing back into the water. That's why you need to stir up your gifts and jump back in. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. If the Spirit of Jesus courses through your spiritual veins... He will drive out fear with a supply of power and love and a sound mind or wisdom. You know, there are different types of fear. Some folks fear failure. And yet God's Spirit gives His people power to succeed. The Greek term for power is the word dunamis or dynamite. The Holy Spirit is a source of boldness and spiritual dynamic that helps us overcome What might drag us down? Other folks fear people, and yet the Spirit counters fear, the fear of people, with love. Perfect love does what? Casts out fear. What Jesus did for mankind, the love he showed, overshadows what man could ever do to us. And still other folks fear the unknown. This is why wisdom or a sound mind keeps us fixed on what's sure and certain. It fixates on God's word and God's promises. You know, in Luke chapter 9, verse 55, Jesus turned to James and John and he rebuked them. He said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. And let's not make the same mistake. Our world today is controlled by fear. The fear of failure. The fear of people. The fear of the unknown. But God has given us a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. See, Timothy had gotten discouraged by looking at Paul's plight. His mentor was in chains. 
But Paul tells him, do not be ashamed. Paul isn't the prisoner of Rome. He is the prisoner of Jesus. Evil men can chain Paul, but they can't chain the gospel. It is the power of God. Timothy was involved in a movement that will one day overtake the world and determine the destiny of all men for all time. Timothy should forget about Paul's chains and recall God's salvation. Verse 9, For he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus. Before time began... Oh, presently, Paul is in prison. But the purposes and grace of God have been at work before time began. Paul's point is, don't trip up over momentary troubles and lose sight of God's eternal purposes. And keep your eyes on Jesus, Timothy. Verse 10. For God has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Paul is a jailed prisoner, but his Savior is risen and is victorious indeed. And Paul's goal is to serve him, come what may, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. Paul's hope, his faith, his calling burned so hot that they couldn't be doused By a temporary trial. Reminds me of the two boys down on the bayou. They'd treat a bobcat. One fella, he climbed the tree and he shook the limb. The other guy, he grabbed a bag and he stood at the bottom of the tree to catch the bobcat. But when the cat hit the ground, fur and blood and skin all started flying. The boy up in the tree, he shouted, he said, can't you grab a little old bobcat? His partner replied, I can grab him all right. My only problem is letting him loose. And you see, this is the issue with the gospel. Once you grasp it and its power, there's no letting go. Paul would rather lose his head to a sword than turn loose of the gospel. Several years ago, an Alabama school bus driver named Charles Poland was shot to death trying to protect the kids on his bus from a crazed man seeking a hostage. Poland was hailed a hero in Dale County. When his wife was interviewed, she spoke of the nights on the porch when she and Charles would sip coffee while they watched the sunset. She quoted the reporter their favorite Bible passage, and it was this verse we're about to read. 2 Timothy 1 verse 12. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Lydia Poland, she commented on this verse. She said, that is what I hold on to right now. God knows he is the only one who can bring closure to my heart. See, Paul, too, suffered inexplicable trials. Friends, life isn't always fair. What we sometimes have to endure doesn't always make sense. Yet Paul held on to the hope that is in Christ. 
he was persuaded that come what may, Jesus has assured you and I ultimate triumph. Lydia Poland had the same confidence. And notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, I know what I have believed. No. He says, I know whom I have believed. Christianity is not just faith in a set of doctrines or principles. It's faith in a person. Paul's confidence was in the risen Christ. He was persuaded that no matter what happened to him today or on any other day, in that day, on the day that his life was over, Jesus would be by his side and would obtain for him the mercies and favors of Almighty God. Well, Paul charges Timothy in verse 13. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And here is a really good gift that you should appreciate. A pattern of sound words that promote faith and love. If you've been blessed to sit under a steady stream of solid Bible teaching, that is, a pattern of sound words, you have been the recipient of a truly marvelous gift. Richard Niebuhr, he once said, The great Christian revolutions come not by discovery of something that was not known before, They happen when somebody takes radically something that was always there. See, we don't need new truths, but we need a faithful reminder of that which is biblical. We need a pattern of sound words. And then he says in verse 15, This you know that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes, These were former fair-weather friends who had abandoned Paul when it got tough to be his friend. When Paul was jailed, these guys bailed. Timothy knew them, and here Paul points them out. Whereas, to the contrary, verse 16, the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. This name, Onesiphorus, it means prophet-bearing. And this man was certainly a prophet or a blessing to the Apostle Paul. Onesiphorus' mission to Rome reminds me of Alvin Strait's journey to Wisconsin. See, Alvin lives in Iowa. And at 73 years old, Alvin's eyes are so poor that he can't get a driver's license. And since he doesn't trust in buses and planes, when his brother had a stroke and he wanted to be by his brother's side, he cranked up his John Deere lawnmower and he drove it 200 miles from Iowa to Blue River, Wisconsin to help and console his brother. See, this was the dedication of Onesiphorus. Paul's spiritual brother traveled from Ephesus to Rome, a far more difficult journey than Alvin's. Onesiphorus went all the way to Rome, and he found Paul in prison, and he lent his friend a helping hand. And Paul says of Onesiphorus, The Lord grant to him 
that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. You know, some people give all fares. Other people pollute the air. They're just real stinkers. But Onesiphorus was a breath of fresh air. He refreshed his brother. Let's seek to refresh one another. Chapter 2. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now here's the golden rule of Christian multiplication or the golden rule of growing a church. See, I can go out and I can win people to Jesus, then spend time with each of those people helping them grow. And in my lifetime, I can perhaps win a few hundred folks to Jesus. Or I can win a few people and help them grow. Then teach those few people to win others and help them grow, who then can win others and help them grow. And suddenly the exponential effect kicks in. The impact swells to thousands, not just hundreds. It's the difference between 2 plus 2 plus 2 plus 2 equals 8. And 2 times 2 times 2 times 2 equals 16. D.L. Moody put it this way. I would rather set 10 men to work than to do the work of 10 men. 10 people can accomplish far more than just one person. And this is how we need to look at Christian discipleship. The word disciple means learner. And every Christian should be learning and growing in their relationship with Jesus. Yet the disciple can't simply remain a learner. The learner should eventually become a teacher. See, I'm teaching you the Bible week after week in hopes that you'll go out and you'll teach others. And then they'll teach others, etc., etc., And when people begin to grow in Christ, they encounter hardships, for Satan attacks. This means disciples need to cultivate endurance. And in the next few verses, Paul uses three analogies to help us add fortitude to our faith. Paul points to three occupations. To the soldier, to the athlete, and to the farmer. And he teaches us that the soldier leads a streamlined life. The athlete has a structured life. And the farmer lives a sustained life. And we should follow each example. Notice first the soldier. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. In other words, warfare is a full-time occupation. It's a 24-7 preoccupation. When you're fighting for survival and the freedom of others, you don't have time to mow the lawn or tend to the flower beds. Your total attention is directed toward the battle. And spiritually, we're involved in a war. Thus, we can't allow ourselves to get distracted by peripheral concerns. Sure, we got to work. We got to be good stewards of our stuff. 
But we can't take our eyes off the battle. Too much is at stake. See, Christians need to develop more of a wartime mentality. Our lives are short. The stakes are high. We need to streamline our lives and make sure we've put first things first. Robert Moffat once said, we'll, all, we'll have all eternity to celebrate our victories, but only one short hour before sunset in which to win them. That's why we need to be good soldiers. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. One name. I'm just going to give you one name. Lance Armstrong. Was there ever a bigger fall from grace? Stripped of seven Tour de France championships for cheating, for blood doping, Lance Armstrong will forever bear a stigma of shame. So what if you achieve a moment of glory only to be disqualified later? And the same is true spiritually. In Christian ministry, the end should never justify the means. When a Christian takes shortcuts or finds loopholes or manipulates to achieve, it becomes a tainted victory. Obviously, for an athlete's efforts to be meaningful, he has to play by the rules. And likewise, for a Christian or for a church, our desire to accomplish great things for God should never override our commitment to do it God's way. God's work should always be done God's way. And finally, verse 6, he mentions the hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. A farmer has to eat of his own harvest to sustain his strength as he works. And while we minister for the Lord, we need to be nourished by the Lord. If we're always putting out spiritually and never taking in, what's going to happen to us will eventually dry up. The farmer who's overworked and underfed runs out of steam. And likewise, the Christian. God's servant needs to eat what he feeds others. Eat your own feed. That's what you need to do. And Paul wraps up all these analogies. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Now remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffered trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. So you can chain the messenger, but you can't chain the message. It's been said of the Bible, it outlives, outlifts, outloves, outreaches, outranks, outruns all other books. You can't hold down the truth of God's word. It has its own power. Verse 10, Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul could endure persecution knowing that through his sufferings, others would hear the gospel and come to be saved. Now this is a faithful saying. The faithful saying that Paul is about to utter is one of several in his pastoral letters. The other faithful sayings you can find in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15, chapter 3 verse 1, chapter 4 verse 9, and Titus chapter 3 verse 8. 
These faithful sayings were probably liturgies used in the worship of the early church. The church recited these declarations of faith as reminders of vital truths. And when we read this, we're going to get a taste of the earliest Christian worship. They would speak in unison. For if we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. Notice the rhythmic, the easy-to-memorize way early Christians recited crucial elements of their faith. And notice the paradoxical structure added to it here. If we die, we'll live. If we endure, we'll reign. If we deny Him, He'll deny us. If we're faithless, He remains faithful. See, each of these statements teaches an essential truth on which the early Christians lived their lives. Notice here the positive reminders. If we die, we'll live. Trust in the crucified Christ to put an end to your sin, to put an end to yourself. And he'll give you his life. And he'll begin to live his life through you. You'll live. If we endure, we'll reign. Endure hardships now, knowing that your faith will earn for you authority in God's kingdom. And then notice here the two negative reminders. If we deny him, he'll deny us. If a man denies Christ, the Lord has no other choice. I never knew you. Depart from me, he'll say. And then the last line in the liturgy is often misinterpreted. He says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Now, folks often use this to gloss over their faithlessness. Oh, see, if I stop having faith in Jesus, he'll remain faithful to me. That's not what Paul means. If you're faithless, he does remain faithful. But but it's not faithful to a faithless person. He remains faithful to his word. God tells us salvation is by grace through faith. Thus, if you have no faith, he can make no exceptions. He's got to be true to himself and to what he's already said. In other words, if you're faithless, he'll remain faithful. You'll be punished. The last line in this liturgy is a warning, not a comfort. And then verse 14, it says, Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Now, pastors who don't teach the Bible and who major on worldly wisdom are dealing in words to no profit. They are truly non-profit ministries. And it causes the ruin of their hearers. In contrast, Paul commands, commands Timothy, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. This phrase translated rightly dividing, it means to cut straight. The Greek word was used to describe a farmer out in the fields plying a straight furrow, or a carpenter cutting a board at an exact angle. 
Now we all, but particularly pastors, need to be diligent in our interpreting of God's Word. Exactness is required in its handling. A haphazardness or a sloppy approach is an insult. See, carpenters have a slogan. I'm sure you've heard it. Measure twice, cut once. Well, pastors should have the same motto. Those of us who interpret the Bible should go by the same rule. Measure twice, cut once. Before a carpenter makes a cut, he slows down. He double checks. He rethinks. Then he stabilizes the board. The cut is made only after painstaking preparation. The slightest slip or miscalculation can produce a disaster. And the same is true if we misinterpret the Scripture. He says in verse 16, But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. Why is it foolish, speculative, empty doctrine spreads like wildfire while sound doctrine flows through the church like molasses? Why is that? Paul says, and their message will spread like cancer. False doctrine or superstition or misguided conjecture, it tends to metastasize in the body of Christ like a cancer does in the human body. And this is why it has to get cut out just as soon as possible, as quickly as it appears. You can't put it off. And Paul points to two examples. He says, Hamanaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth. Recall back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, Hamanaeus was the person whose faith had been shipwrecked. Paul had to deliver him to Satan for him to learn not to blaspheme. And here was his error, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Hamanaeus must have denied a literal resurrection of our physical bodies, thus concluding that people were free to indulge in their fleshly appetites in immoral ways. And Paul condemns this man for his false teaching. He counters him in verse 19. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And then verse 20. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Now, if you attended a state dinner at the White House, you would probably dine on expensive china. The oldest presidential china, by the way, was purchased by James Monroe in 1817. The plates are decorated with a presidential eagle. I mean, these plates are priceless. But if you toured the kitchen of the White House, you'd probably also find some regular dishes. Maybe even some paper plates and some plastic cups. Dishes that when they get soiled just get tossed out after their first use. You would find vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. And the same is true in the house of God. There is the pure teaching of God's word served up on plates beautifully embossed 
with the seal of God's Spirit, vessels of honor, rightly dividing the word of truth. But you'll also encounter some impure doctrine from some unreliable vessels. This sort of speculation comes from dishonorable vessels. And Paul says in verse 21, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. The Greek name Timothy means God-honoring. And Paul wants his young protege to live up to his name and how he cares for and handles God's word. We too need to rightly divide the word of truth and prove ourselves to be vessels of honor. And then verse 22, flee also youthful lusts. Ronald Reagan once said, middle age is when you have two temptations and you choose the one that will get you home by 9 p.m. <laughs> In contrast, Timothy was a young man and therefore vulnerable to all the temptations of youth. Sex and power and greed and vanity and popularity and pride. Timothy needs to flee anything that might draw him away from Christ or you ruin his effectiveness for Christ. You remember how Joseph reacted to Mrs. Potiphar's advances. He didn't try to be polite. He didn't try to let her down easy. He raced from her embrace. That's how young men should handle temptation. Sprout wings and flee. But there's another old saying. Most people who flee temptation usually leave a forwarding address. And that's why Timothy needs to not only flee temptation, but instead pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Hey, we need to flee temptation and then sink deep roots in Christ. Verse 23 tells us, But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. What difference does it make how many angels fit on the head of a pen? Why argue about that kind of stuff? I mean, some issues make good argument, but nothing else. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. Notice, a servant of the Lord corrects others while watching his own step. Nobody has perfect doctrine. Nobody has arrived. We all have our blind spots, areas where we can learn. That's why we all need humility. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Notice when a person does come to their senses and escapes the snare of Satan, it is the result of of God granting repentance. God is the one who grants repentance. Only God's Spirit can truly change a person's heart. And thus today, we need to pray for those that are ensnared. Would you join me? Lord, we do pray for those who need to repent of their sin.
and who need to turn back to Jesus. And Father, I have no doubt that there are some under my voice in this room today who need to do just that, who need to lay it all out before you, confess their sin, turn from their sin, ask for your help, ask for your freedom, ask for your deliverance. Lord, I know that if they ask, they will receive. For you are faithful to bring repentance to hearts who seek it. And so, Lord, I pray for any person here today who is ensnared in the devil's web. Lord, I pray that you would deliver that person. If they're ensnared in unbelief, if they're ensnared in fear, if they're ensnared in a web of pride, whatever it might be, Lord. Lord, I pray that they would flee lusts and sink deep roots in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would grant them repentance this morning. And deliver them and free them and set them free. Lord, you forgive. It's your specialty. And so we seek you for that this morning, Lord. We ask that you work in our hearts. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.